This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, January 20th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. One popular argument in favor of restricting speech during elections is that some spending might corrupt candidates. But what if the amount of money is tiny and the candidate? Well, it's a ballot initiative. The case of Justice V. Hoseman offers the Supreme Court an opportunity to weigh in if they take the case. Cato's Trevor Burris and Alan Dickerson with the Center for Competitive Politics talk about the case now seeking review at the High Court. The Cato Institute uh, and the Center for Competitive Politics and the Independence Institute have assembled a brief in the case of Gordon Vance Justice V. Delbert Hoseman, which I'll just like to say over and over. Um, so what are the arguments here for Mr. Justice, uh, Alan Dickerson? Well, there's a few. I mean, the most important one is, as you alluded to, the fact that there aren't any candidates in this case. This is entirely about ballot speech, talking about whether or not uh, Mississippi should pass a referendum creating a constitutional amendment blocking uh, the sort of eminent domain abuses that were present in um, the city of London versus Kelo. And what, what there's a couple of interesting facts here. One is that um, the amount of money involved is minuscule in this case. Uh, and the traditional justification for making people register with the state when they want to speak about politics is that uh, you know, the, the voters need to know who is standing behind candidates or, or in this case standing behind a particular ballot proposition. You know, in this case, you had five friends who uh, were in, in the purest sense uh, unaffiliated. I mean they're sort of social buddies who had passed the hat around and organize libertarian rallies and things of this nature. Uh, they stipulated they would, they would raise less than $1,000. Uh, and despite those facts, the state of Mississippi is inserting that you know, they need to register with the state and say that they're going to be spending money on this ballot initiative because the people need to know. And that, that last bit, this idea that any sort of regulation that is, is done in the name of quote unquote disclosure uh, is presumptively constitutional is, is a question that is uh, really dogged the lower courts. And um, and we're hoping the Supreme Court will weigh in on this one. Yeah, all over the country, we have people who aren't nefarious billionaires. I'm putting nefarious in quotes there because I don't think they're nefarious, but they're often accused of being nefarious. People who aren't wealthy who are trying to spin in elections. And, and often, they're not even giving money to candidates directly. They're just going to pool their money to spend under $1,000 on radio ads. And they are constantly blocked by regulations that require them to appoint a treasurer, to disclose their names, all in the name because the people need to know. And this is the really interesting campaign finance case that needs to go to the court next or I would like to go to the court next. And we've, we've brought a couple of these petitions, supported a couple of these petitions because it will be interesting to see what the campaign finance censors, the, the other side of this debate, say about the little guy because they always had rich – a lot of these cases came up with rich people wanting to spin in elections, for example, or quote-unquote rich, or Sean McCutcheon case a few years ago. But this is just grassroots as it can get. And that's supposed to be what they're all for is grassroots political activity, but the, it's constantly being hampered by government regulations. And one of the things that we constantly have to ask, especially when it comes to a ballot initiative, is why are we doing this? You can't corrupt a ballot initiative, so it must be that the people need to know. And I, I just ask our listeners who – how many people see that people spent $800 on an ad supporting a ballot initiative and then go immediately to the website of their state election commission or the federal election commission to see who spent on it then to – in order to decide who whether to vote on this well, ballot well, let, initiative. Let's start with that issue, this idea that uh, uh, you can corrupt a ballot initiative, which it's not – totally ridiculous on its face if, if, as one of the arguments goes, that they want 
you to you're trying to influence voters and because you're trying to influence voters who will be exercising a more direct form of democracy, they need to know who's behind the specific uh, spending that's going into this initiative. You're lobbying. Well, and that's that's part of the the complexity is that you know there's there's a case called Bilotti in the Supreme Court which says you can't corrupt you know the people when they vote on a ballot initiative. This isn't like giving money to a candidate. This is the only thing that's justifying state regulation in this area is this idea that. You know, knowing who's paying for speech in favor of or opposing a ballot measure in some way a proxy uh, for the interests that are that are being served by it, uh, and I, I think this case poses a real problem for that theory. Uh, which you know, going back to what Trevor was saying, I think it's highly improbable that go, anyone's going to the Mississippi Secretary of State's website, pulling up the list of people giving two hundred dollars um, generally for speech on this ballot measure and voting accordingly. If they are, it's probably on the basis of some sort of highly personal, um, you know. Uh, Googling for for previous bosses or something. And what we don't have in this case, and this, and Alan can talk about this uh, with his litigation experience more directly. But, but when you're talking about a two hundred dollar limit, for example, if we're doing our typical First Amendment analysis, we say, what's the what is the government's interest in this? Well, it's disclosure. Like, is it really a two hundred dollar? I mean, maybe I'll grant you. $50,000. If someone spends $50,000 in supporting or uh, opposing a ballot initiative, then maybe people would like to know that. But does it actually go down to $200 and you want to ask the courts, analyze the actual line that the government drew, analyze that line. Uh, don't just accept their, their rationales. And that's what's been a really difficult problem for people like Alan who are actually in the trenches here is actually getting the courts to analyze why does $200 as a line for having to comply with these regulations, why does that make sense? What government interest does that line serve in this case? And on the other side, I mean, how heavy are the burdens? And there's a case called Samson out of the Tenth Circuit, uh, which creates something of a circuit split with this decision, which said, look, if the cost of complying with the state regulation is greater than the cost of the speech you're trying to get out, you know, no rational person is going to speak under those circumstances. You're silencing grassroots speech. Um, and so the, the Tenth Circuit said you can't do that. Um, I, I think the, the Fifth Circuit had this very odd sentence in its opinion in this case where it said, you know, asking five friends who are pulling $200 each uh, to, to come up with a bank account, to appoint a treasurer, to file these reports, et cetera, are just what prudent friends would do anyway. Um, and without, you know, questioning any of the personal relationships of anyone who would, would write a sentence like that. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that's false. And a, a rational group of friends who want to spend less than $1,000 on a ballot initiative and who have to spend more than $1,000 worth of time just figuring out the law are not going to speak. Right. And it's, it's, it's weird because you would have to be aware that that would be a reasonable thing to do, which sort of belies the argument that any reasonable group of people would do this because we all uh, – are steeped in these kinds of issues uh, all the time, when, when in fact few of us are. Well, in fact, the district court judge in this case, while looking at the Mississippi law, they're, 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 I mean, this is overly technical, but there's two portions of it, and it's not really clear which portion of the law applies in this circumstance. This is one of the reasons the district court judge, a federal judge in Mississippi, was having so much difficulty figuring out what the law was. That he said, "Look, this is part of the burden. Is that you, you can't expect people passing the hat at a bar, you know, to figure out." These sort of complexities, and don't, a lot of people don't understand what, how low the contributions and the federal and the reporting and the state reporting is for political speech. They they 
only the conversation centers on the Koch brothers and people like this. They don't understand that they could easily run afoul of it in nearly any political uh, spinning they want to do, either it's independent or through a candidate. And that's just the way it's been for a very long time. We, you have to register with the government in order to criticize it. I mean, the very first action the FEC ever brought, or I think it's the first, had to do with uh, people who brought out purchased an ad in the New York Times saying a resolution to impeach Richard Nixon. And that, that ad, no one thought, they didn't think that there's any way that purchasing an ad would, would run afoul of the FEC, but it did. And, and I think Brad Smith uh, from the Center for Competitive Politics tells a story about a motorcycle gang uh, who had this idea they, 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 to ride across the country with flags and to stop and talk about uh, President Bush, ride all the way to Washington and have a little rally. And, and someone had told them, well, you probably have to get a lawyer before you do that. And they kind of laughed and they said, really? And, and then they called him up and said, someone has to – someone said we should call you. And he's like, yeah. You should get a lawyer. Like, I'm, like you should get a lawyer for a bunch of motorcycle – a motorcycle gang to have flags on their bikes and to ride across the country. Yeah. So for uh, uh, ballot initiatives, we've established it and it seems to be the case in uh, previous decisions that these are fundamentally different. But what about that larger idea that anytime you're trying to influence a voter, uh, which of course that's all, what all political spending is, it's what all commercial, uh, commercial spending is. We're trying to influence your decisions, your behaviors. But in, in there is this larger theory that there there exists perhaps some state of nature for a voter's mind that we should not uh, disrupt and that there is a public interest in regulating those disruptions. Well, I, I think it's fundamentally counterfactual. I mean, the, it, it's, it's hardly a, a novel point that the, the defining characteristic of humanity is its social nature. I think that was Aristotle. Um, and you know, to, to sort of suggest, as, as I think you quite correctly say, that you know somehow it is nefarious to try to influence your fellow citizens is, you know, it's it's a deep indictment of the theory of democracy, um, and I and I don't think intended. I mean, I think it's one of these problems where these sort of regulations are so difficult to defend on the facts. Uh, that people are, are left in some ways grasping at straws. You do need to, if you're going to oppose uh, the kind of speech free spending elections that, that we advocate, you do need to have and therefore you're opposing some types of influencing of voters uh, or at least you need to register or, or some people aren't allowed to do certain things. Uh, you need to have some theory of what sort of a justified influence and what's not. If you can't really understand modern campaign finance opponents of spending without looking at anti-corporatism, so called like Adbusters magazine from the late 90s, thinking that corporations themselves were part their ads were some form of mind control. Think of the movie They Live. If anyone has ever seen this, uh, uh, in this movie, Rowdy Roddy Piper puts on these glasses and he can see this the secret mind control behind ads, and how the people people are running the world. Well, there's a theory about both ads for products and by extension ads for candidates that says that people are basically not, – not me, not the person saying it, but other people are basically blank slates that corporations can write onto their brains whatever they want and make them buy a product or vote for a candidate. And if you don't have a theory like that, it's very hard to figure out how to impose campaign spending. You have to have – it's like some, that's an illegitimate influence on someone's mind. That's, an, that's too much speech. That's, they see too many Jeb Bush commercials. That's wrong. We need to have some way to, to control the input into their mind and therefore it's it's a weird type of I would call it mind control. And if you do have that theory, of course, you know, the, the fact that 
there is grassroots activity done by individuals is uh, an uncomfortable fit. And so I think, you know, in some ways, if, if, if you're right, Trevor, you know, this, this idea that five friends have to form a corporation in order to speak about politics uh, is in some ways, you know, the, the, the circular continuation of that way of thinking. Where is this case right now? The Supreme Court has not decided to hear it, but they have taken some action that would indicate that they might. They have asked the state of Mississippi to respond to the petition, uh, which is a, a step that is not taken in all cases and which will increase the probability of it being taken. Trevor Burris is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Alan Dickerson is legal director at the Center for Competitive Politics. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's new iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>